Good morning, Southwinds and all of our guests. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, Today is going to be a great day at Southwinds because we're celebrating baptism for the first time in months this afternoon. And if you have not yet taken that step of following Christ publicly, we want to invite you to do that. If you've trusted in Christ uh, for your salvation, you've turned from your sin and in faith received the gift of his grace, then you need to be baptized. And if you'd like to do that, you can contact us this morning. Just email baptism at southwinds.org and we'll get in touch. Today is part four of our teaching series in the letter of 1 Peter. It's called Hope for Exiles. And I hope you get a Bible out, whether it's paper or electronic, and join me there in 1 Peter. If you don't know where it is, just go to Revelation, last book of the Bible, put it in reverse, and you'll get there pretty quickly. If you're not a Christian with us this morning, you're listening, we're really glad you're here. It's a great study for you to be part of because Peter sets out so many important truths about the Christian faith so concisely and memorably. First Peter is an incredibly relevant book for this time in which we're living because Peter, he's speaking to people who find themselves increasingly out of step with the surrounding culture. They're facing opposition from coworkers and neighbors because they follow Christ. Some of them have lost their jobs and governments around them are turning up the heat. They're realizing that they don't belong in this world because they're citizens of another kingdom, God's kingdom. They're elect exiles. And Peter covers all kinds of relevant topics like identity, who we are as God's people. Peter talks about how Christ's followers should live, especially in relationship to people who hate what we believe. He talks about our relationship to government. He talks about persecution, about interpersonal conflict in the church, about marriage, about pastoral leadership, and so much more. I'm so glad we're studying 1 Peter this fall. Last week, we, we studied 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. And I, I told you that these verses tell us how God wants us to live as exiles. I pointed out three rules for exiles. Fix your hope, live out of sync, and live with fear. If you didn't hear that message, you can listen to our podcast or watch it on YouTube or Vimeo or go to southwinds.org. Now, what we're going to see today in today's passage is that Peter is continuing to give rules for exiles. He is still telling us how we should live in a world where we don't belong. So today's message is going to be rules for exiles part two. And we're going to begin reading at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 22 and following. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to invite you to join me in prayer right now that we would ask God to reveal his word to us, to teach us as we study what he has said to us here. Father, during these days of hardship, We say with the psalmist, Lord, if your word had not been my delight, 
I would have perished in my affliction. And Lord, we delight in your word, even as we are afflicted and suffer pain and sorrow. Lord, we pray that you would feed us today by your word. God, show us yourself and show us our sin and then show us our Savior. May we see Jesus today and may that change us. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. And all God's people together said, amen, amen. Now, last week, we saw three rules for exiles. This week, we're going to see three more. And as you will see, these are aimed more at how we live with other Christ followers. And we see the first of the three today in verses 22 to 25. And I can't think of any way to say it better than just to use Peter's word. You can write this down. Love one another earnestly. In verse 22, again, it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So God commands us as his people to love one another earnestly, love deeply, love selflessly, love purely. Uh, Peter says that this love, it grows out of a purified soul that happens as we obey the truth. And he describes this love as sincere, and that means genuine. It means it comes from the heart. We must give ourselves fully to this kind of love. And, and then Peter says it's brotherly love, which tells us he's speaking to us as believers. He's saying to us, do not forget this. Now, why would this be an important rule or command for Peter to give these elect exiles? It's basic Christianity, of course, to love one another. But I also think it's because when life is hard as it is for exiles, when things start to get tough, when the pressure cooker is on, who are we most likely to lash out at? Not outsiders. We usually lash out at the people we ought to love the most. You know, one of the things that we haven't gotten to do this year because of the pandemic is go to Disneyland. And I just want to ask some of you, those of you who'd like to do that, how many of you have ever spent more money than you'd ever want to admit at Disneyland? How many of you have experienced this? You know, you spend all of that money and sometimes it, it puts a lot of pressure on everyone, right? I mean, it's the happiest place on earth. We better have a lot of fun. The other day I heard someone talk about one of those family trips to Disney. And, and this family, one afternoon, they found themselves walking along behind another young family. And it was about two in the afternoon, you know, right about nap time. And this family in front of them had a four-year-old boy and he was losing it. He was just sobbing, crying so hard, you know, he had almost stopped making the noise. And his mom was sort of dragging him along the path by his arm. And finally, mom had enough. And she stopped and she leaned down and she spoke to this child and she said, we have paid thousands and thousands of dollars to be here. Pull it together. <laughs> now, I'm not judging that mom. I mean, I think I understand her. It, it happens, right? When life is hard and the pressure is on. Sometimes we say and do things we shouldn't to the people we care about the most, the people who matter to us the most, our families. And you know, it happens even in the family of God. We turn on each other when life gets hard. 
And maybe during this season, a season of pandemic, of, of racial and political and economic turmoil, maybe you found yourself judging and criticizing other believers. Maybe your heart has not been one of love. So Peter is saying to you, we must love one another. Love earnestly, love sincerely, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, as I said, this is just basic to New Testament Christianity. It's what Jesus taught his disciples. He called it this new command. Remember in the upper room in John 13, after he'd washed their feet and, you know, Peter was there, he heard that. And Jesus there told his disciples that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Do you realize how much it damages our public witness as Christians when we fight each other? when we don't get along, when we aren't characterized by love and harmony. I mean, way too many churches are marked not by love, but by dissension and division. We need to remember today that our real enemy is Satan, not each other. We cannot be the people Jesus called us to be if we're not standing side by side together for the faith of the gospel. And far too often, far too many churches end up standing face to face against each other. I wonder if you saw that movie a few years ago, Remember the Titans. It's about the 1971 integration of black and white students at T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia. The players there represent the racial tensions present during that time. And if you remember, the tempers are hot, a lot of conflict. But then the team goes away to football camp. And of course, uh, Denzel Washington is the coach. And they become a family at that camp before the season starts. And, and eventually, uh, there are these great scenes of them playing together as one, of, of them singing together in the locker room, you know, just becoming one. At the end of the movie, there's this moving scene when Gary, who's one of the white team leaders, is in the hospital. He's been paralyzed from the waist down. And Julius, one of the black leaders, comes to see him in tears. Gary's mom says to Julius, he only wants to see you. And these two guys who were once enemies, they have become family. And when Julius enters the room, the nurse says, only Ken is allowed in here. And Gary says, Alice, don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. And as Julius visits, he says to Gary, you know, when all this is over, we're going to move in the same neighborhood together. They stopped fighting and they became a family and they excelled as a team. I mean, what an important word for us today. How easy is it for some of us to bring what's out there in here into the church? Friends, we need to recognize the real enemy and it is not your brothers and sisters. So encourage one another, support one another, care for one another, love one another as family. I mean, don't you see the family resemblance? We are brothers and sisters in God's family. <laughs> I mean, if football can bring people together, how much more should the gospel? Now, again, Peter describes this love as sincere. It's not fake. It should come from a pure heart. It should be earnest. And I want you to know this is not a casual indifference to the church you cannot love earnestly if you don't know people in your church family. You cannot love earnestly if you only show up when it's convenient for you. And he doesn't say you love the people that are like you. There's nothing supernatural about that kind of love. Even the pagans do that. What makes us different is that we are sacrificial in our love. 
We give our time. We give our energy. We give our money. All these things we give to one another, all for the sake of the gospel. And I just want to say, if you're not willing to do those things, maybe you need to ask yourself if you're truly part of God's family. You know, one of the most remarkable things said about the early church was how much they loved one another. One time, the Roman emperor Hadrian sent a man named Aristides to spy on early Christians. And this man came back reporting, behold, how they love one another. I wondered if someone spied on the church today, what would they conclude? I guess it would depend on which church, but You know, in too many churches, it would be behold how they criticize one another. Behold how they judge one another, how they wound one another. Let us be people who love one another. And let our love for one another be the thing that marks us. See, how can we live like this in a world that's just marked everywhere by conflict? Well, Peter gives the reason in verse 23. Go back to the text he, he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We love one another earnestly because God has changed us. He's made us new people. We have been born again. And that's what Peter was saying back in verse 22 when he said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That's Peter's way of describing our salvation. And it reminds us that salvation is not just getting our sins forgiven. It is the surrendering of our wills to God and we obey him and our hearts are changed and we're we're new people. I just wanna say if obedience It's not something you think of when you think of salvation, of of being born again. You don't understand the new birth. Notice how Peter says, we've been born again, not of something that perishes, but of something that is imperishable. This seed that brought us life, true life, eternal life, this seed is the living and abiding word of God. In other words, the word of God is the source of our new life. Peter says we're born again. Literally, this means we're conceived again. It's a very dramatic concept. It means everything changes. We have new life. And and here Peter is grounding his call to love others in our new birth. See, this this is how God brings people to life. This is how God brings everyone to life. This is how God brings smart people to life and not so smart people. This is how God brings young people to life and and people who are not so young. There is only one way people come to life. And friends, listen, it's hearing the word of God, specifically the gospel. You know, as a, a side note, we should take from this that we should speak the gospel to as many people as we possibly can can because this is how it works. This is how people come to life. We tell them the gospel. The gospel brings new life. It's the living word of God. And God's word is also the sustainer of our new life. It's the abiding word of God. He, he tells us this, that the word, this word of God is imperishable. And Peter loves that word. The seed that God uses to bring life, it's invincible. It's, it's living. It's incorruptible. It's abiding. This word, it continues to nourish us, sustain us. That's why we, we need to read it. It brings us to life. And then it causes us to bear fruit. We continue in this word. 
Go next to verses 24 and the first part of 25. Peter here, he quotes from Isaiah 40. It says, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, why does Peter quote from Isaiah 40? If you go back and read the book, you'll see in Isaiah 40, God is, is comforting his people, saying to them, I will bring you out of Babylonian captivity, out of exile. Those people then were refugees. They were living in exiles, just like the believers Peter was writing to. And Isaiah uh, proclaims to them, he proclaims to them the good news in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people. That's what Isaiah says. And then he goes on to compare the surrounding nations to God. He says they're like a drop in a bucket. He says the human leaders are just like grass that withers. He says, you want to talk about human glory? It's like a piece of grass that dries up. That's an image we get around here, right? Especially this time of year. But by contrast, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. And, and Peter gives the main reason for that quote in the first half of verse 25 when he writes, the word of the Lord remains forever. Because when all is said and done, the word of God stands forever. Do you know that we can rest today, you and me, in that reality as well? I want you to think about this, friends. No matter what happens in November, no matter what our government does, no matter what our culture may do, the word of God remains forever. God is sovereign. God rules. And then he gives us in the rest of verse 25 these words. He says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. He says this good news, this, this good news that comes to us in Jesus Christ where real comfort is, the one who has led us out of ultimate slavery, out of the ultimate exile, and who will take us home forever. This word comes from him. And so as elect exiles, Peter, he's telling us we have power to love one another earnestly from a pure heart because God has given us new life through his word. Well, here's the second rule, the next rule for exiles today. You can write this down in your notes as well. Stop the sins that destroy community. Now, this is in verse one of chapter two. And in this verse, Peter talks about what you might call the flip side of love. See, love is action. Love is positive. But, but sometimes love is about not doing some things. And that's what Peter talks about here. Look at verse one. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Uh, you'll notice that word, so, it, it connects what uh, is about to be said to what has just been said. It, it could be translated, therefore. So Peter says, so, or therefore, because of what I've just told you uh, about loving one another earnestly because God has given you new life by his word. Peter says, here are some things that you should stop. And he gives five things as examples. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And isn't it interesting to think that these are sins we are particularly prone to when we're under pressure. These are the kind of things we can do when we're in pain or when we're suffering, when we're, when we're losing out in life, when life isn't turning out the way we thought it would. Peter says, put them away. The image here underneath this word is, is like taking off filthy, smelly, disgusting clothes. We don't want them. We don't want to be around them. 
And one way for us to get at what Peter is telling us is to not to not do is to turn these things on their heads. So in other words, if we stop these sins, what will we do? Or think of it this way, uh, in stopping these sins, what are we starting? In putting away these sins, what are we putting on? Malice, well, malice is ill will towards someone. It usually involves a planning to do evil. We want to hurt someone. And it it often involves rejoicing at the downfall of a person you don't like. And so we shouldn't do that. But in the gospel, Jesus says, I've given you a new love. We, We put away malice. And if we're putting away all malice, what are we putting on? Well, we would be putting on all good will. We want good for people. We don't want bad things. You could group deceit and hypocrisy together because both of them are about something false, something dishonest. You know, we may have to wear masks during COVID, but we shouldn't wear masks in our relationships. So if we're putting away deceit and hypocrisy, what are we putting on? Well, all truth, all honesty, all transparency, all all genuineness, all integrity. And then if we're putting away envy, what are we what are we putting on? Well, envy is, is wishing you had something someone else had or it's resenting that they have it and you don't. So instead of envy, we put on love. Love which desires the best for other people. And then if we're putting away all slander, this means we're putting away harmful, hurtful speech. And so we, in its place, put on praise and we put on affirmation. We intentionally say good things about others. Now, how is this going to happen? Well, here's the reality. Some of us have been really good at malice. Some of us are highly skilled at telling lies and living a hypocritical life. Some of us may wonder if we actually have the spiritual gift of envy. It just comes so easily to us. It just flows out of us. And some of us slander other people without a thought. Peter says we need to take action. He says, stop doing those things. Put those things away. I think it's interesting to note that many of these sins get expressed in speech, which is a stark contrast to the word of God. So how do we change? Well, Peter says we change through the power of the word, the word which brings us into new life and then the word that sustains us in that new life. In other words, friends, the people of God need the word of God. Now here is the final rule our final rule for exiles. And we see this in verses two and three of chapter two. Write this down in your notes. Peter tells us that we are to crave spiritual nourishment. Notice how how seamlessly he moves into his next metaphor. He writes, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter commands us to crave God's word. And he uses vivid imagery that may make some of us uncomfortable. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk. This translates literally, long for the milk of the word. And Peter, if you haven't gotten it yet, is talking about breastfeeding. And in case you don't see that right off the bat, he makes the connection explicit. He says, we are to crave spiritual nourishment like newborn infants. It's kind of interesting how many scholars and commentators get to these verses and it's almost like they can't wait to get away from this as quickly as they possibly can. Some people read this and think that Peter is writing 
to new believers, but I don't think that's what's happening. I think this is simply an analogy about how we grow, about how all of us, regardless of how long we have followed Christ, we all grow in just one way, and that is as we are nourished, as the Spirit and the Word change us. And this just shows us how dependent we are on God's word for spiritual nourishments. Uh, You know, one of my central convictions as a pastor and preacher is is in the power of a cumulative effect of God's word over a long period of time. And that's why we often go through books of the Bible like we're doing now, because we believe that people receive nourishment through that. And it's an interesting thing. You don't always see change tomorrow, but change is happening Maybe you can think of it this way. It's kind of like when your kids come to dinner. Dana and I have four kids, and when they were smaller, we would gather them for dinner every night. And as they would come, you know, they wouldn't look any different really than they did the day before. But then after dinner, you know, you'd walk up the stairwell and you'd see pictures of them from earlier, and you'd say to yourself, wow, they are growing up. Well, how have they been growing up? Well, they've grown up because they've come to dinner and breakfast, and lunch. And it's the same way with God's word. We grow over time as we are nourished. You know, my goal for you as your pastor is is not for you to remember all my points. I mean, honestly, I don't remember all my points. My goal is to nourish you. And I am confident that as you feed on God's word, not only listening to messages on Sundays, but even more importantly, as you feed every day throughout the week on the word of God, I'm confident that you will grow. Now, Peter, just in case you were wondering, isn't using this metaphor in the same way that the writer of the letter of the Hebrews does. There, in that passage that you're familiar with, maybe milk is viewed negatively like it is for immature believers. And he there says that we need to go on to meat. Here, though, Peter is just saying we all need milk. We all need God's word to nourish us. Maybe you remember the old ads, milk, it does a body good. Well, you could say the same thing about us as Christ followers. Milk does a body good. Again, I want to remind you, don't forget who Peter is writing to. These people are suffering. They're in great hardship. So what do they need? Well, they need strength. Where do they, where do they get that? They get it from God's word. What do we need today? Well, we need strength. Where do we get it? We get it from God's word. That's what Peter is telling us. We need to crave spiritual nourishment. Have you seen the movie 1917? There's this scene in the movie where one of the two soldiers the movie focuses on, and if you've seen it, you know they haven't slept, they haven't eaten, they've gone through the night, the war's raging all around them, planes are crashing, people are shooting at them, and, and they come on this, this cow that has just been milked. And there's a pail of milk in front of the soldier, and, and he just starts guzzling the milk down because he's so thirsty, so hungry. And it's a beautiful picture. We are in a war. What do we need? We need the milk of God's word. We need strength. We we need spiritual nourishment. We need pure milk. So don't be nourished on something else. Be nourished on the word. It's pure. It's spiritual. You know, this word spiritual is used only one other time in the New Testament in Romans 
chapter 12. It's used to refer to what is reasonable or, or logical or rational. It's the rational thing for you to do. A person who has been born again through this word, this is where you find your nourishment in the word. And so Peter says, crave it, long for it. I mean, think about this. If you're a baby, drinking milk is not a burden for you. It's a delight to you. And if you don't give your baby milk, it will be a burden to you. And so this command is, again, not something we don't want to do. It should be something we delight to do. And we do delight to do it. 1 Peter 2, verse 3 says, because we have tasted. Look at this verse. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've tasted the goodness of God, you want more. It's an interesting play on words Peter uses here. The word for good in Greek is krestos. Christos for Christ, Christos. This word for good and kind and this word for Christ set next to each other, he's saying in Greek, Christos is Christos. I want to quickly point out three things that happen when we crave spiritual nourishment and we satisfy our cravings in God's word. First, we find strength when we enjoy God's word. Psalm 119.92 says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And Psalm 119.28 says, My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And then second, our witness flows from our enjoyment of God's word. Think about it. This is really what evangelism is, telling the world to taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, some of you know this, but uh, my wife, Dana, makes this amazing pulled pork that we've enjoyed for years. It's, it takes most of the day to make it. It's slow cooked and it's smoked over coals. And, and she, she makes these amazing sauces that you put over it. And then when it's done and she's, you know, pulling it apart with a, with a fork, people just kind of gather around and everybody starts reaching in for a piece. And when we have people come over who've never had this before, I take them pieces. Here, here, you need to taste and see. You need to try this. It's good. You know, if we are not tasting ourselves, then we will not hold out God's goodness to other people. When we know in our daily experience that God is good and God is gracious, we will instinctively want the world to taste his goodness. Goodness, We will say, I don't know what you're tasting, friend, but you need to taste this. Nothing is as good as God. And you know, honestly, when that's happening, no one has to tell you to go out and share the good news. You just do it out of the overflow of your joy, your enjoyment. God tastes good, and I, I want you to know his goodness too. Third, our relationships change when we enjoy God's word. When the goodness and kindness of the Lord satisfies our souls, we change into people who are good and kind ourselves. You know, Bible says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, that begins our Christian life. And it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance every day. We turn from our sin each and every day. We become more like Jesus. See, when our souls are not in a good place, it leads to relational problems. But when we crave God's presence, crave God's goodness, when we, we crave the taste of his grace, it transforms us and makes us gracious and gentle people. It makes us people who seek love and seek peace. I want to wrap everything I've been telling you this Sunday and last by telling you this. 
so much, so much of what we need to live as the elect exiles is right here in 1 Peter 1 and these first verses of 1 Peter 2. I just want you to think back through all that Peter has been telling us. If you, if you go back to verse 13, I just want to ask you today, I want to ask you, elect exile, have you set your hope fully on God's grace? Are you finding your hope and your strength and your meaning in him alone? If your hope is in God, then Peter would tell you, you won't find it burdensome to live a holy life. You will want to be like your father who is holy. If your hope is in God, then you will live your life in the fear of God. Like Peter says, you will live with reverence and awe for God, not for people. You know, I was thinking about it, that, that living in exile is just the perfect place for us to examine our fears. You know, as I've been telling you each week, we are living in a time where our nation is moving rapidly toward a post-Christian culture. And there are a lot of God's people who are very afraid of this. And Peter, friend, is telling you as an elect exile, remember to fear the right thing. I mean, think about it. Why would we as a church fear the shifting sands of culture when our God is the rock of ages? Why would we fear the words of a politician when the word of the Lord stands forever? And if you get this and take hold of it, there's so much hope in it. It doesn't depend on us. It depends all of it on the sovereign God who is good and who is full of love and mercy. And friends, let me remind you that our God is not up in heaven wringing his hands as he looks at our nation in anxiety. And so people of God, Elect exiles, conduct yourselves with fear because God in his great power has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we are new people and we will live forever and we will never die. And so our hope never needs to die. Remember that we, we are the people of an imperishable inheritance that God is guarding for us in heaven right now. We don't need anything from this world. We don't need comfort. We don't need control. We don't need power. We don't need acceptance. All of those are just idols in this world and we need to give them up and accept that we are exiles who don't belong in this world. But we have God and we have eternal life and we have an imperishable inheritance And we know this because God has ransomed and redeemed us with the precious blood of his son. God gave everything for us. And so, as people of hope, we, you and I, we should be walking around saying to everyone, taste and see, friends, taste and see the Lord is good. This is where life is found. You can be born again. You can find true life. We have hope and we want others to know our hope. And when you, when you get what Peter is telling us, friends, it just puts everything into perspective. If the Lord is good, then everything we experience in this world is light and momentary. If the Lord is good, then his sovereign plan, it's nothing to fear, even if it seems really painful right now. If the Lord is good, then his judgments can hold no terror for us. And because we know the Lord is good, that means we can set our hope fully on Christ and his promises. And we can walk through this world that is not our home in confidence and in peace. But I'm telling you today, we will not get to that place if we are not craving the word. Because it is God's word 
that transforms our thoughts and renews our mind. It is God's word that calms our fears and fuels our hope when life tries to drain our hope away. God's word. And so, friend, let me say it again. Taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His word is good. His word remains forever. So take that word to your family. Take that word to your neighbors, to the people you work with, wherever God opens doors for you, and tell them, taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Tell them he's been so good to me. I just want you to know his beauty and goodness like I do. Friends, I'm telling you today that God is good. I'm telling you today that God is better than anything in this world that you might crave and long for. So crave him, long for him, long for his presence and his goodness above all other cravings. (laughs) We're not home yet, but that's where we're headed. And we will be home one day. One day, we will see Jesus And we will be able to tell him face to face, you are good and your love endures forever. Would you join me as we pray? Father God, we thank you for the beautiful gift of your word, your word written, which we can read and enjoy every day. More than that, Father, we thank you for the beautiful gift of your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, in whom your glory dwelt bodily in all its fullness. And we pray, Lord, today that we would be content to live as elect exiles, setting our hope fully on you and your grace, the grace you have revealed in Jesus. Lord, we ask you to strengthen us to trust in our great inheritance and to live in obedience to your truth. Lord, may we love one another earnestly and and just put away those sins that tear community down. Lord, we ask you to give us an ever-increasing appetite for spiritual nourishment. May we taste each day the goodness and the kindness of Jesus until we see him. We pray all of these things, Father, today in Jesus' good name. In the name of our Savior and our Lord and all God's people together, wherever you are, say amen. Amen. Thank you again for joining us, praying that you'll have a wonderful week in the Lord, experiencing all his goodness. I'll see you next Sunday.